Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Easter Sunday service. Thank you for joining us today, those of you who are with us here in person and online. And thank you for praying for me and for my wife, Lori, as well. We have been sick. Uh, we both have had COVID, and we are recovering from that. And uh, so uh, that was my issue last weekend. And uh, I know many of you have had COVID or are struggling with it, and uh, we appreciate your prayers, and we want you to know that we're continuing to pray for you. Uh, it is a knockout disease, a knockout virus for many, and uh, we're still in the process of finally kicking it. So we would appreciate your continued prayers for that. Therefore, I won't be shaking anyone's hand today, so please don't take that personally, but we can wave or we can bump elbows, and I'll be masking when I'm back among you. Yet we still get together in some way this Easter Sunday for which we are thankful. And some of you here today or some of you watching online are here because someone invited you to be here, maybe a Christian friend or family member, and you would not call yourself a Christian, but you have come today to uh, support them or to just accept their invitation. And I really want to thank you for that and for taking the time to be here today. I am sure that your presence and your agreement to come has been a blessing to those who have invited you today. Today being Easter Sunday, of course, is the day that Christians celebrate the resurrection of Christ, and yet there are all kinds of people in this world who are not Christians. And I want to start today by giving you three reasons why people are not Christians today. And, and one of these may describe you if you are not a Christian or if you're kind of uh, questioning your Christianity. Some have very specific reasons, and uh, one of them is related to the resurrection itself. Some don't believe that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. And so this would, group of, uh, of reasons I would call intellectual reasons. Some people have intellectual reasons why they don't believe in Christ or in Christianity. And when it comes to not believing in the physical resurrection of Jesus, did you know that there are churches and churchgoers who do not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus? They have adopted a symbolic or inspirational view of the resurrection. And they say that Jesus was not physically resurrected, but his spirit was resurrected. And they say we too can experience such a resurrection by trusting in God. And it doesn't matter whether or not Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. It's the idea of resurrection that actually matters. Now, I would disagree with this approach because it may seem to solve the issue of a supernatural resurrection or event. But he creates all kinds of other problems. It makes all of our resurrection witnesses liars, or it moves the entire resurrection account into the area of myth. And according to an author in the New Testament called Paul in chapter uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he argues that if Jesus has not been resurrected from the dead, our faith is futile. We are still in our sins. We are to be people most pitied, and we can close the church and get on to something else. So where might this idea of spiritual resurrection come from? Well, it could come from someone having a naturalistic or materialistic worldview. And a worldview is the lens through which we view the world. 
and it colors everything that we see and all of our interpretations of what we see. So this worldview believes that nothing happens outside of nature's laws. So there are no miracles, no miraculous interventions, no God figure over it all, no life after death, because that goes outside of nature's laws. The only reality in this view is nature itself and that which can be observed or tested in a laboratory. So if anyone claims a miracle, the naturalistic worldview will say, well, if you investigate it thoroughly enough, you can either disprove the miracle or find another explanation for it. And people who hold a naturalistic worldview find other problems with Christianity beyond the resurrection. So these folks have these intellectual reasons for not believing in Christ and his truth claims. And that may be a position that some of you hold or some of your friends or family, co-workers or classmates hold as well. Then there's another group of people or another set of reasons which I would call emotional reasons for not receiving or believing in Christ. Maybe they had a bad experience with a church or with a Christian. Maybe they have a friend who is a Christian but lives no differently than they do. And so they wonder, why would I live as a Christian or believe in Christ if it's no different than the way that I live? Maybe they look at bad decisions by the church or Christians throughout history and conclude, well, if that's what the church is like and that's what Christians are like, I want nothing to do with that. And we as Christians have to acknowledge that there have been times in church history where Christians have done terrible things in the name of Christ. Think of even recently in the 1950s and 60s where in the southern U.S. there were churches that still held segregated services, whites-only services, or much closer to home, think about the residential schools that were generally run by churches, done in the name of Christ and all the abuses that happened there. So we as Christians need to acknowledge these realities, and people, of course, are going to respond emotionally to information about the church and Christians doing things that do not honor the name of Christ, though they've said it's in the name of Christ. And then there might be people who have had a tough time in life, and they cried out to God, and they didn't get what they answered, so they have concluded, or what they wanted, so they concluded, God has abandoned me, and I want nothing to do with him. So some people may not believe in Christ for intellectual reasons, some may not believe for emotional reasons, and then the third one is some may not believe for social reasons. It costs a lot to become a serious Christian and begin a life of following Christ closely. So a person may hesitate to come to Christ because of the potential social impact on their lives. What will their friends think? What will their family think? What will their spouse think? Children, parents, friend circle, extended family, social group. And in some cultures, if you are to abandon the dominant faith of the country, you will face a serious severance from your own personal family, from the faith community, and perhaps the marketplace. So that is a high cost to pay to become a Christian. And I agree. To come to Christ costs much. But I would also argue, ultimately, it costs more not to come to Christ. So people may have intellectual, emotional, and social reasons 
not to believe in Christ or his claims. And some have a combination of reasons that fall into each category. And if any of this describes any of you here today or watching online, I respect your choices and your reasons. I am not going to belittle them. I am not going to trivialize them or dismiss them. Some of you have thought long and hard about your decisions, or you have gone through tough experiences in life, and you have come to these conclusions. You've got serious questions about Christianity. And I respect that. But for anyone here who is spiritually seeking seriously and wondering about the Christian faith, I'd ask you to recognize something. Recognize that the church is filled with Christians, people who are flawed. Coming to Christ does not make anyone perfect. And so inevitably, within the church and without the, with, through church history, there will be Christians who make poor decisions, wrong decisions. We often do things or believe things that go against Christ. And Christianity begins and depends on Christ. He is the core. And when a church or a Christian aims to align themselves to Christ, the likelihood of authentic Christianity greatly increases in that Christian's life or in the church community. And so if you are seriously spiritually seeking today, I would invite you to get to know Christ himself, which will help you sift through some of the blinders that may have arisen in your life because of encounters with the church or with different Christians. And you can get to know Christ by reading what are called the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one will introduce you to Jesus. You will get to know his story, his teaching, his character, and his love. And if you're with us here today and you don't have a Bible, I want to invite you to take the Bible that's in front of you home with you. The only criteria, the only cost is that you promise to read it. Promise to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see what will happen. Because looking at Jesus' life and teaching can often have a transforming effect on us. And in the few moments that we have remaining with us today, we are going to look at a short episode from Jesus' life after the resurrection. And we're going to see that Jesus appears to people to show them that he is alive. And if you're following along and want to make some notes, the entire point of this passage is simply that. Jesus appears to people to show that he is alive. And the resurrection of appearances of Jesus to eyewitnesses is very important to us as Christians because if Jesus was raised from the dead and immediately went into heaven, we would have no eyewitness account of the resurrection. And then everyone would come up with their own explanation, as they do already, as to why the tomb was empty. But Jesus reveals himself to people to show that he is alive. And so we're going to look at this today, and then I want to talk briefly to close about other ways that Jesus reveals himself to us today to show that he is alive. And so if you have a Bible, you can find Luke 24, verses 36 to 49. It's on page 748 in the Bibles in the sanctuary here, or it's on the back page of your program. The entire text is there. 
Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 49. This is the very end of the Gospel of Luke. And it says this. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself? Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So this passage comes from the Gospel of Luke, and Luke was an educated man who could read and write, and he was also a medical doctor. And if you go back to the very beginning of the Gospel, Luke explains what he is going to do in this Gospel. So in Luke 1, 1 to 4, Luke writes this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, so he's referring to other Gospels there, a narrative of Jesus' life. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So he refers to eyewitnesses, people who have seen and encountered Jesus. It seemed good to me also, Luke says, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So he is going to write an orderly account for this Theophilus person, and that's a Greek name, so this is not a Jew. Some, a Greek person has converted to Christianity, and Luke has decided, I'm going to make a careful orderly account for you to see the story of Christ, I have followed things for quite some time, and I am doing this so that you may know with certainty the things that you have been taught. So this is a faith-strengthening document put together with careful research and study. And if Luke is a responsible doctor, he would not report lies, and he certainly wouldn't report something as out of nature as a resurrection without careful investigation. And we see throughout Luke 24 that Luke puts together all these eyewitness encounters that people had with Jesus. And just before our passage, he talks about these two disciples, not of the 11 remaining, but two other disciples who were believers, who believed that Jesus was the promised one and were devastated by his, resurrection, or his crucifixion. 
And then they are walking on the road to a village called Emmaus on Sunday afternoon of Jesus' resurrection. And they have heard the rumor that Jesus is alive. And suddenly Jesus joins them on their walk and he begins to explain to them all the scriptures concerning himself. They don't know it's Jesus until they sit down to eat. He breaks some bread and suddenly their eyes are open. And then they decide, we have got to go back and we have got to tell the 11 disciples about this. So in Luke 24, verses 33 and 34, just before our passage, we read, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. This is the two who are walking on the way to Emmaus. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So the 11 are already saying this. They're saying, the Lord has risen indeed. Simon Peter is there. He said, I have seen the Lord. And then verse 35, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So that's the two who are walking on the road to Emmaus are telling the other 11. So that's the scene. The 11 disciples plus whoever else is with them plus these two who have just come from walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus are talking about all of this. And suddenly Jesus is standing among them. And he does not announce his coming. The door does not, is not, there's not a knock on the door. From other gospels, we know that the doors were locked. He's suddenly standing there among them. Yet they don't respond with all kinds of joy and happiness. Jesus says to them, peace to you, which is a common greeting, but they think they have seen a spirit. They are startled, the text tells us. They are frightened. They think they see the Spirit, a disembodied presence. And this reaction seems strange because they've just been talking about the fact that Jesus is alive. The Son has risen indeed. Well, it's one thing to say that the Son has risen indeed. It's another to see the risen Son. And Jesus, I, I love his response. He says, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Well, if I was there that day, here's the answer I would have given, having all this time in the world to prepare my answer, but I would have given him three answers. Number one, why am I troubled and why do I have doubts in my heart? Number one, I have never met a resurrected person before. So I have no category on how, how, how to relate to you. Number two, the doors were locked and you gave no warning of your coming and you're suddenly standing here right beside me. I'm scared at the smallest spider and here you are suddenly appearing. And number three, you were dead on Friday. And I saw it, I heard about it. The Romans brutalized your body. They stuck a spear in your side. So it's going to take me a moment to take in the fact that you are standing here right beside me. Yet Jesus immediately shows compassion to them for their struggles. For in verse 39, he says, See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones that you see that I have. So Jesus is pointing to the physical reality of his body. 
He invites them to look at his hands and feet to see that it is him. And, and in saying that, he might have been saying, oh, you'll recognize my hands because you've known me and you've seen me at work and you, you'll recognize my hands. But more likely is there will be these unmistakable scars on his hands and his feet where their nails pierced him and pinned his body to the cross. But not only does Jesus say, see my hands and feet, he invites them to touch him. They could feel his physical body with their hands. And again, he points to his physicality. He says, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now, notice how this does not align with the spiritual resurrection idea or that resurrection is just an inspiring idea, why would Jesus put so much emphasis on his physical body if he had not physically resurrected? We would just expect him to give a speech, an inspiring speech, and disappear. But there would be no need to point so directly and intentionally to his physical body. And then the scene continues in verse 40. He shows them his hands and feet, and then verse 41. Did you catch verse 41? How strange of a verse it is. Verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Now, those, that first phrase, the words do not go together. While they disbelieved, with joy, and were marveling. Wouldn't, shouldn't it say, and while they believed with joy and were marveling? Or while they disbelieved with sorrow and despair? So, so what's going on? They're disbelieving with joy and marveling. And the only thing that I could think of that was going on here is they want to believe but it's too good to be true in their minds. Ever use that phrase? It's too good to be true. You hear, you hear a pitch from a salesperson. Uh, you see an advertisement, and you would like it to be true, but it's too good to be true. And so even as you're saying, it's too good to be true, you're smiling. Oh, I'd love it to be true, but it's too good to be true. I think that's what's going on for the disciples here. They would love this to be true. But they're still disbelieving. They have no category for a resurrected person, it seems, that's standing, especially with how smashed Jesus' body was by the Romans. And Jesus recognizes their doubt immediately and asks for some food. And then they give him a piece of broiled fish, and he eats it before them, which ultimately convinces them of the reality of the physical resurrection. Because disembodied spirits cannot eat and cannot be physically touched. So Jesus appears to people to show that he is alive. And then in verses 44 to 49, we have Luke's great commission. The commission to the church, where Jesus teaches and gives them their commission, explaining how the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament had a lot to say about him. And that the crucifixion, death, and resurrection fulfilled these scriptures. And then, 
verse 45. And if you ever want a verse to add to your devotions, Christians, add Luke 24, 45, which says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And just as he opened the eyes of the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, the road to Emmaus, here he opens the minds of those present to understand the scriptures. And then here is the commission. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That is the commission. He reminds them, you're witnesses of these things. Remain in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high, the Holy Spirit. And then the gospel ends with Jesus' ascension. So Jesus encountered these people after the resurrection to show he was alive. Jesus' appearance convinced his followers that he was physically alive. They began to spread this news. They were the eyewitnesses. They told their story to authors like Luke. His careful research has been preserved for us in the Gospel of Luke for 2,000 years. And this is the Christian claim. Jesus physically rose from the dead and lives today. Now, wouldn't it be great if Jesus decided to show up right here, right now, for us? Would that be a jolt to your faith if Jesus showed up right here, right now, and said, see my hands and my feet, and come and touch them? Would that be a jolt to your faith? I think it would be for most of us, and yet he doesn't do that. Why? And I think it's because God has revealed himself in multiple ways for us to discover him apart from Jesus physically appearing to us. And in his wisdom, God has determined that these other ways are more than sufficient for us to discover him and to connect with him. And these other ways include things like creation. And the evidence of God's work in creation. Him speaking to us in prayer. Him speaking to us through others. And him speaking to us through his word. And that is what happened in my story. So I grew up in a Christian home. And I was a Christian primarily for an emotional and social reason. As I was growing up. The Christian community was my social community experienced a lot in that community, had a lot of emotional ties there, family, church family. And I never really thought about the intellectual side until God brought some people into my life that seriously objected to Christianity and raised these questions that I had no answer for. And instead of engaging with the questions, I got angry whenever they would bring them up. And I would, I would go back to my emotional and social reasons for being a Christian. I was afraid that these objections could not stand up to scrutiny. But then I entered the ministry. And those of you who've heard this part of the story before, forgive me. I, I started as a pastor at the age of 26 and had not read the Bible through once. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be a pastor, I should probably read the Bible. And I was actually scared for many years, because I thought I would find fatal contradictions, errors, and enough evidence to prove that what I believed was false. Instead, 
I discovered the brilliance and complexity of God's saving work throughout history. And I was convinced it was God's work because no human would come up with the, the way that God did it. From the weakest, raising from the weakest to the greatest, not, not coming as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant. No human would come up with that idea. And God wove together all these threads into a beautiful tapestry in Jesus' life. And then I learned how Jesus' words and life fulfilled so much of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And then I saw how Jesus' disciples were ordinary people like you and me, used to spread this news about Christ. And it became a worldwide movement. And I wasn't just impressed by God's brilliance and by the knowledge that he showed but I encountered God through his word and the Lord Jesus as they spoke to me through these pages. So I have not had an encounter with Jesus where he appeared to me and I was able to touch his hands and his feet, but I have encountered God through his word again and again. And you might say, well, how can you have a relationship with someone, hear someone through a book? And, and someone said something or was teaching something that has really stuck with me and helped me in approaching my Bible now. They said that the people at Mount Sinai, the Israelites, heard the voice of God. Deuteronomy 4 talks all, or, and 5 talk all about that. They actually heard God's voice and they were terrified by it. But the medium through which they heard God's voice was the air. God spoke from Mount Sinai. His voice went through the air. They heard it. And this writer or author said the medium through which God communicates to us now is through his word. And we, would, we say, you know, oh, if God would only speak to me in an audible voice, then I would believe him. Well, the medium has changed. We now have the scriptures. God speaks all the time through this word. And we can encounter him and encounter the Lord as we come to him and his word. And so many times as I have come to his word, I feel, sense in my spirit, this is the Lord speaking to me about this verse right now. This is truth. This is something I need to change, Lord. And yes, this still does require faith. It will not satisfy the materialistic, naturalistic worldview that demands everything can be tested in a laboratory. But this kind of faith is not the blind faith that many portray Christians having where, you know, you believe something that you know is not true. Blind faith, like the tooth fairy. Oh, uh, sorry for you adults who still believe in the tooth fairy. But Something like that. Oh, I know it's not true, but I'm just going to believe it anyway. That's not the kind of faith that we're called to. This kind of faith is the kind that depends on solid evidence like an empty tomb. Yet we don't get everything explained or have all the evidence that we think we need. We're given enough to relate to our God and to the Lord Jesus Christ who reveals himself to us continually if we will only seek him. And so, my friends, if you are not a Christian, I would invite you to get to know Christ. Don't get all hung up on the church and on Christians. Yeah, that's part of it. And we believe God's working here. 
but get to know Christ. And don't take my word for it. Go to his word, which he has given in the four Gospels, and let them speak to you. And yes, there are tough things in the Bible, but there's enough clear there that you can read it, you can listen to it, and hear from God himself in your life. And if you already know Christ, I pray that this little review today and this commission at the end of Luke will inspire us to move forward under his name. Hear it again one more time. Thus it is written, these are Jesus' words, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That is our mission until we see him face to face and can touch his hands and feet. Lord Jesus, we come to you today. We don't know how we would react when we see you face to face. Probably a lot like these disciples. Thinking it's too good to be true and yet wanting it to be true. You know where everyone is at in this room with respect to you and online. Those who believe, those who are doubting, those who don't believe at all. And I pray that in some way you will speak into each heart and reveal your reality, the reality of you to each one of us. Thank you for your great sacrifice on our behalf. And we worship you and rejoice that you are our living and resurrected Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.